Hey everyone, how's it going? It's Connor here and I'm back with another episode of the Money and Plants podcast. I hope you got something from last week's conversation. I would like to say thank you to all of you who have given me some feedback. It was very positive. Quite a number of you guys have taken something from the conversation I had last week with Nick Leeson. Nick's a fascinating character. His his story is incredible. So I'm glad that some of you get value in that. The whole idea of this platform is to try and educate, empower and inspire people and also inform people uh, around some of the big ticket issues around business and health. So ultimately, each of us can make better choices in life. In this episode, I'm going to be speaking to a really interesting guy about the economy and some of the potential outworkings for us locally in Northern Ireland and across the world. And I'm also going to then be speaking about some of the things we can do as individuals to help us all deal with this pandemic and to build our immune system. I recorded a video and put it onto my social media channels at the weekend, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and I shared it with people. Seven things that we can each do to try and help build our own immune systems. And that video has got, well, it's been reviewed and watched thousands of times in the last few days. And the feedback has been quite good. So that's something that I'm going to be uh, talking about later on in this week's episode as well. Before we get into this week's episode, let me ask you a few questions. Are you currently in negative equity? Is your property portfolio in negative equity? Are you currently under any kind of financial distress? In 2010, I set up a debt advisory practice with my business partner, James. And over the last 10 years, we have helped hundreds of people and hundreds of businesses break free from debt. If you want to check us out, you can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter. You can also go to our website www.gdpequityexperts.co.uk. The sponsors of this week's episode is our debt business, GDP Equity Experts. In this week's episode, I'm going to drill into the potential economic problem facing all of us here in Ireland and to do that I will share my own thoughts and my own experiences in the last seven to ten days and you will also hear from this week's guest who I will introduce very shortly but first of all I wanted to share with you some commentary that I was able to pick up over the weekend if you look at what Martin Wolf was saying um, who is Martin Wolf? he is the chief economic editor of the Financial Times and it's his view that in terms of the uh, backlash from C19 he doesn't think we're going to face a depression as such, but he does feel it will be deep and profound, the recession, over the next three or four years. So he is predicting a recession. If we look at a chap by the name of Mr. Courier, who is the headman of the Organisation of Economic Cooperation and Development, they're a huge global economic organisation, the OECD. It is his view that this is going to be very profound, and 
that we are already seeing mass unemployment across the world and that is a huge problem it's his view that this is going to go on throughout 2020 2021 and 2022 he sees this as a real challenge for the world and every single economy on the planet over the next two to three years and i think that's really interesting because i think it's hard at times you know at a local level i think it's very important to have some kind of an understanding as to what's going on globally because what we now know for sure what happens in china can impact us at home in ireland or the uk so one of the things I've been trying to do is to try and figure out what's happening in New York, what's happening in Singapore, what's happening in China, what's happening in Germany. Because ultimately I know that that will impact me and my business and your business as well. And one of the things I learned from the last GFC, the last economic crash, was that information is important. And what's more important then is that as a business owner and an entrepreneur, that we empower ourselves and we take action on the information that we receive. And that normally comes in the form of a plan. And it's very important, I think, now that business owners are aware of what's going on and ultimately that you put your own plan in place to save your own business and a plan for what's coming down the road. I think it's important also that we have good discussion and good debate around what's the best for our businesses and what's best practice for our economies. And I think if you look what's happening in America at the moment, Mr. Trump is very keen, very keen to get the economy and the Americans back to work, which I think is really, really important. However, I don't envy the challenge. I said this last week, I don't envy the challenge of balancing the humanitarian problem that we have in our hospitals, which thankfully it would appear, according to Professor Mallon, who runs a hospital in Dublin. He's one of the immunologists who I've been sort of following over the last few weeks. He's excellent. He's a Northern Irish doctor based in Dublin. It's, of, it's his view that, and it's also the view of the medical people in Belfast, that we are past the peak in terms of COVID-19 in Ireland, which is great news. However, the challenge facing all of us, and particularly those who run the place, is that we avoid wave two, wave three, and wave four of this pandemic. Because what I do know is that in parts of China over the weekend, they have subsequently closed down one or two towns again because... They have seen, particularly in one area of China, northeastern China, some Chinese nationals returned from Russia last week, and with that they brought COVID-19, and that spread very quickly through the town. So they've closed that town again, and that is wave two of C-19 in that particular area. And we know that there have been similar experiences in Japan, Singapore, and South Korea as well. So we think from an Irish perspective, I think on a UK perspective, it's very important that we are mindful of what's going on in other parts of the world and make sure that you know we can learn from some of the mistakes which let's be honest are happening all over the place right now um which is regrettable but you know uh, it is what it is this thing came out of the blue but i think it's important that we all are aware of what's going on around us which will then allow us to make better decisions i also have a number of concerns at a local level around the business support schemes that are out there. I have concerns around the banking sector. I'm quite uh, verbal about this. If you follow me on, on Twitter and LinkedIn in particular, um, I have been saying for the last number of weeks that I've been hugely disappointed uh, around the banking system locally and the lack of support and the lack of uh, messaging and marketing our local banks are doing around the coronavirus business interruption scheme. 
Um, we know that the, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak has basically instructed the banks to lend 330 odd billion quid to businesses to keep them afloat. And as of today, there's only like a billion pound or something has been lent of that 330 billion, which is not 0.25% of the total funds available to businesses. And the bottom line is that if the banks don't get their act together in relation to C-bills, then this week, next week, this month, hundreds of businesses are going to go bust. So these are some of the topics and issues that I am speaking about in this week's podcast. I'm delighted this week to welcome Mr. Paul Gosling to the show. Paul, I think, is very unique in Northern Ireland in that he seems to have this innate ability to simplify and talk about complicated matters in very simple terms. And I suppose from a consumer's perspective, that's important because we need to understand a lot of these things which are more complicated, like our economy, politics, and things of that nature. So Paul has been one of the top contributors across mainstream media locally for the last number of years. He is also a freelance journalist. He has written for most UK and Irish national newspapers in the last number of years, and he has also written several books. In his most recent book, A New Ireland, Paul considers the prospects for Irish reunification, and he talks there about the business case for same. And I suppose, from my perspective, this is whenever I started looking a little bit closer at Paul and his work, because I thought it was a fascinating paper that he produced last year and his new book, A New Ireland, where he does build a very, very strong case in terms of the economic case for Irish reunification. And this is actually something that me and Paul talk about in the course of our conversation. So, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Let's get going. Okay, Paul, good morning. You're very welcome to Money and Plants. It's great to speak to you. How are you keeping? I'm fine, basking in the sunshine through the window at the moment. Wonderful. Absolutely. Excellent. And from a health perspective, I suppose, have you contracted COVID-19 as yet or have you? No, uh, um, neither myself nor my two daughters who are living with me at the moment, nor my son who's living on the other side of the city. We're all clear. I do know people. I know uh, one of my friends in Derry has contracted it. One of my contacts in Belfast, seriously ill with it. Uh, and okay. uh, people in uh, England that I know, uh, a couple of those people that I knew a long time ago have died, and others I've known have been, who have been very close to, have been seriously ill with it. So, uh, my perspective is we in the northwest have avoided the worst of it. Clearly, it's it's bad in Belfast, and it's very bad in parts of England. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I've been all over this um, for lots of different reasons. Obviously, I, I own a, a couple of businesses in, in Belfast. I'm quite active on the entrepreneurial front. But I think Ireland, North and South, it, it would appear. I mean, I listened to uh, Professor Paddy Mallon, who works in the Dublin Hospital. And I think they're saying that in the North as well, that we're sort of past the peak. And I know from listening to Robin Swan last month, I mean, the, the numbers in terms of fatalities in Northern Ireland that we expect we, we, we may have hit, Paul. I mean, we're absolutely nowhere near that. They were talking in the thousands. So, I mean, that's that has been absolutely uh, a blessing. But I wanted to just, whilst I have you on, I wanted to talk more about, obviously, there's two 
huge impacts here globally going on. There's the humanitarian side of it, the health problem, which is uh, tragic. But from an economic perspective, I mean, I know you've written for many years uh, in terms of your economic coverage and, and accountancy and politics, but how do you see this? What are the initial sort of from a Northern Ireland perspective? What are the things that concerns you most about I, this COVID-19 pandemic right now? I think uh, the over-dependence in Northern Ireland on sectors that are going to be particularly badly damaged by this. Um, I've been concerned for a long time about the extent to which we are invested in the tourism sector. Uh, and I think tourism is wonderful. And I think that somewhere like Derry and the North Coast can really generate large numbers of tourist visitors over the longer term and could have done before this crisis. But the problem with that sector is that it's typically seasonal, low income, and it's not something you should base your economy around. Now, you add to that the fact that for me, the cruise industry is dead for years. Uh, possibly forever, because you can see what happened with the princess liners. I think you'd have to be mad to want to go on a cruise at the moment. And actually, there's going to be real concern about traveling by air as well. So I think those travel-related industries are going to be very badly damaged. I think that restaurants and cafes are going to have a real difficulty, and pubs, in reopening, and hotels. And I think that by the time we emerge out of lockdown, it's likely to be the autumn which is a very bad time of the year for the tourism industry. You know, the, and in Derry, we have obviously Christmas markets, but we also have Halloween, and I can't see that happening. So a lot of those seasonal activities will just be dead for this year, and we have to hope they will re-emerge next year. And then you add to that, yeah. the fact, you add to that kind of the fact that retail is going to be very badly damaged because we'll see really the acceleration of existing trends towards online retail. We'll see a lot more use of home distribution networks. And I think that a lot of the retail sector will have real difficulty in recovering. And we've seen that a number of the fashion retailers, uh, either they're seeking uh, administrative support out of uh, avoiding complete closure. Uh, some of them will be closing a number of stores. And I think the retail sector, especially around fashion, will have a real difficulty in recovering from this. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I started, I own a debt business where we help business owners um, deal with debt. And that business started in 2010, which was really off the back of the GFC at that time. And I think the difference between what's happening now and what happened then, certainly about 10 years ago, it was pretty much, you'll probably agree with me, a banking institutional crisis, which affected uh, specific sectors. But with this one, I mean, nobody nobody escapes. I'm currently advising a number of retailers who are, their next quarter's rent is now due in Belfast, Paul. And clearly, I mean, it's against the law to trade. And, you know, businesses, are they need cash flow to survive. So clearly the, the retailers that I'm currently advising, they're not in a position to pay rent. And of course, then there's the domino effect of that because the landlords are obviously have got financial covenants to meet in terms of the loans to banks. And I mean, I, I just think that that is a huge problem right now. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that and then potentially what your thoughts might be on the strength of the banking system, particularly the Irish banks at the moment, because, you know, 10 years ago they weren't so good. And it's only really in the last three or four years where, they, where they've been able to get rid of their non-performing loans, Paul, that they've come back to some kind of health. But I'm just not sure at the moment how strong the Irish banking system is if so many people are not able to complete or, or 
either mortgage holders the end of the month? Yeah, I mean, to start with the property sector, I mean, clearly the crisis in retail will knock on to the property sector. I mean, without mentioning any particular shopping uh, areas, there are some which I can't see are viable. And I don't mean the individual retailers. I actually think some of the big shopping centers become unviable because of this, because I think you have significant levels of default, significant levels of of retail closures. And I think that, that we will see a change and clearly what we also have to see is governments moving much stronger with the BEPS process from the OECD in terms of tackling tax avoidance and tax evasion, including by some of the... We'll see that change in relationship between governments and the, the, the big online retailers. I think that is going to cause problems for the Irish government in terms of its relationship with some of the big online companies. Uh, moving on to the banks, again, actually, the key relationship is going to be between governments and the banks because you've seen in the UK that the uh, the Treasury under Rishi Sunak has put a lot of the emphasis on banks distributing money. Well, banks are being forced into a position where they're going to take on significant levels of risk as part of that process and they are really resisting that. Mm-hmm. And we've got a big problem that the banks are simply not distributing the cash in the way that the UK government intended it to, and they're not going to do that unless the UK government moves towards 100% guarantees, and the UK government may not be willing to do that. And I think we've got a significant problem. So I'm not sure that necessarily that feeds into uh, a significant early level of non-performing loans, but clearly over a period, it will cause problems because even if the banks are covering 20%, some of those loans are not going to be repaid. So I think we will have problems. And also what we can't underestimate is a lot of existing debts will not now be repayable. So you'll have uh, an increase in non-performing loans from from some of the the loan stock that the banks had assumed were going to be repaid. Because actually, you know, if if a lot of the hotels aren't going to reopen for a year, a lot of the restaurants will never reopen, perhaps a lot of the cafes won't, then really, you know, some of the banks are going to have real difficulty with some of this. Yeah, I I don't disagree with any of what you've said. I mean, if we look at... um, the Delata Group, who have about seven hundred and sixty odd million pound of debt at the moment across four or five funders, banks. Um, if these guys, I mean, the hospitality industry, hotels, I, I think they will be in the last wave. You'll probably agree with me in terms of opening up. And yes. I mean, do yeah. you really think that it could be twelve months before hotels are, are back functioning again? Is that what you think? Yes, I I, th- I think that uh, a number of hotels will choose to not reopen for 12 months because I think if they can't reopen say until September why would you reopen in September into a dead season I mean I just that doesn't make sense so I think a number will take the operational decision that actually by the time they can reopen the trade won't be there so they would be better off not reopening just keeping things but I can't see the furlough schemes going on beyond maybe six months because of the cost of that to government. So we will then have a significant yeah. impact through that. And actually, we don't need to talk about Delata. We can talk about Travel Lodge. Travel Lodge has been in difficulty with for some years. Uh, it's now in much more difficulty. It's declared itself to be in much more difficulty. It, that is going to have really difficult implications 
for the property owners that they've got leases with. And so I think we will see some property owners in really quite desperate situations out of this. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree. I spent many years um, advising and, and in terms of the whole non-performing loan scenario, whereas, as you know, NAM has sold the Northern Irish Loan Book, Project Eagle, to, to Cerberus. And given, given the fact that these hospitality businesses and, and hotels, uh, quite a few of them locally, have, have a lot of debt, Paul, mm. um, I do see that scenario working itself out in a similar pattern over the next 24 months. Just in relation to Seabills, I mean, this is something that I am uh, involved in every day with our funding business. I take your point around, you know, the, the, the issue that I see with Seabills is that ultimately it's down to the discretion of the credit committees of each of these banks, whether uh, an applying business gets the loan or not. And that's that's a real issue for businesses who are applying because, you know, the banks just have not stepped up. And I think I think there's a couple of things in that. I think the government need to come out this week to say that they, you know, they will back these loans 100%. I'm not sure they will. But also, I think more importantly, as you know, I think the the banks have said that you know they're they're implementing three month payment holidays. I think those payment holidays need to be across the board uh, for six months at least, and I think they need to be underwritten by either the central banks or governments. Um, I think that needs to happen now because, I mean, I just know the amount of people who just simply don't have the money, Paul, to pay their rent, and are going to go straight into default, and then the landlords are going to be in the same position. So it's 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 absolute chaos out there. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that uh, clearly, even though the UK government has put in, you know, really significant measures, they're still not adequate for the for the situation. And the other thing which which uh, business owners have, have spoken to me about that they are unhappy with is that the three month extension does not come with an extension of the loan repayment period so that they have a holiday for three months, then they go back potentially into a very bad trading situation where they actually have to increase the monthly repayments over the same term of repayment. And that is going to cause significant difficulties. And and the banks have said to me that they're willing to negotiate and discuss this. But this does expect a significant amount of goodwill from the banks. And I'm not sure that actually they have necessarily the capacity to deliver that because, as you've already referred, they are still recovering from the 2008-2009 crisis. And to what extent do they actually have the capacity? Now, I know that the stress tests have shown the banks to be in good condition, but this does make certain assumptions. And the assumption was not this, you know, not this level of crisis. And no one was really prepared for that. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's it's problems ahead. I think I think one of the big the biggest challenges facing business owners is, um, quite a few of them, believe it or not, uh, are financially you know not uh, au fait with uh, mortgage documents and facility letters, and they're not even financially literate because I spend my 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 time advising and helping these kinds of people, Paul. And the issue is how willing and open banks are are prepared to help. And, and what capacity they have to help. And as you know also that quite a few businesses have borrowed money outside of mainstream lending platforms in the last five years. I mean, there's been 7 billion quid borrowed off peer-to-peer lenders in the UK alone in the last few years. And the peer-to-peer guys don't necessarily operate the same way as the traditional banking system in terms of this these types of scenarios. So no, I, I think it's going to be a, 
a huge challenge for business owners right across the board. Um, just just on a on a local level, and from the Northern Ireland executives' point of view, Paul, what how do you feel locally? We have reacted to the crisis to date from an economic perspective. Uh, I I think it is difficult. Um, I think that too much of what is happening is dependent on the UK decisions and the UK decisions have not themselves been adequate. Now, I'm not trying to make a nasty point against Rishi Sunak because I don't because no one had in their back pocket plans to deal with this. But basically, apart from the rates uh, rollout with the relief and the repayments uh, then Northern Ireland hasn't had a great deal of discretion and the big issues are about the scope and the size of the schemes that have been available from the UK government which have not been adequate so in the first instance you had the gap between the smaller and the very large companies the, the companies in the middle didn't have access to funds then you've got issues about the the, the level of coverage uh, you've got the issues around the fact that the banks were pushed into this at short notice without necessarily the, the commitment to delivering. The banks haven't got the systems in place. So all these things, the really systemically difficult issues, are actually at the door of the UK government and the banking system, not within the Northern Ireland executive's control. And I think it would be unreasonable to blame them too much. I think they can easily be blamed around failures about the health service and the lack of personal protection equipment. Uh, I think that is where their weakness has been rather than the economic measures. Yes, I would like them to do more, but my the, the really big systemic problems lie with the UK government, not with the Northern Ireland executive. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I mean, it, 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 it seems to be that the mood music in the last couple of weeks with the press conferences seems to be a lot more cordial. Um, but look, we've all been, I mean, everyone has been caught. We not, Nobody really expected the, the pandemic to come along, obviously, and, and the impact that it has made. Just just before you go, I wanted, you've done a broad piece of work on Irish unification. And I would say at the outset that it's not the time to be talking about the reunification argument um, right now. But I am interested in, and I know, I know you, you wrote a piece last year, and the opening line was, whatever happens now with Brexit, seems bound to make Irish unification more likely. And what I would be interested in your views would be, you know, this this kind of scenario, uh, C-19 uh, pandemic, uh, it doesn't recognise borders. And in terms of everything that's going on right now in the sort of more medium to long term, is this another argument potentially for your paper uh, on Irish reunification? Yes, and in fact, the second edition of the book in New Ireland will be out fairly soon, uh, despite the the ac- epidemic, the pandemic. Um, yeah, I think actually uh, COVID-19 does add to the arguments in the sense that I think uh, Leo Varaga, despite being effectively a caretaker Taoiseach at the moment, has actually been much more effective than Boris Johnson has been in, in terms of political leadership. And I think that even within unionism and loyalism, there's a recognition that actually we are better to be led on these matters by Leo Varadkar and the Irish government than by the British government. I mean, it's in, you go back to what happened with Brexit and the fact that the Irish government prepared for the possibility that the, the, the referendum would lead to uh, a vote in favour of leaving the European Union. And the UK government, under the specific direction of David Cameron, when prime minister, did not prepare for that. And I think you've got something similar with COVID-19 in the sense that the Irish government has shown itself 
much more capable of leading in a crisis than the British government is. And we, those of us who read in detail the Sunday Times analysis of the failures of leadership with the UK government, I think it shows the fact that actually just on basic competence levels, the Irish government is better at doing things than the British government is. Uh, there's an expression in American politics is that you have to learn to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. And I think one of the big problems in Britain is that it's shown that it's unable to do anything other than Brexit. And consequently, it's been unable to deal with the COVID-19 crisis. So that doesn't deal with the economy. But fundamentally, my analysis is that Northern Ireland has a weak economy. The fundamentals in the Irish Republic are strong and we would be better to reform ourselves to be more like the Irish government and less like the traditional Northern Ireland administration. Yeah, I, I, I would tend to agree with you. I, I think I think uh, life, it's, it's really all about perception. Um, and I think the messaging coming out of the Republic of Ireland government, this is sort of a, they've been doing this quite well, actually, you know, in terms of Ireland Inc. and marketing Ireland as a great place to do business. I think they've, they've played a blinder in the last sort of 10 to 15 years in terms of what they've done with the economy. And I suppose the complete opposite of that is the shambles and the continued mess that, that goes on in the British government. And I, I, I watched Michael Gove try to debunk the Sunday Times um, report yesterday on on Andrew Marr, and I mean, it just it just I just think in this new digital age, Paul, people are a lot wiser, and we have more power than 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 you think, and that that kind of stuff. Now, I think people are are starting to make up their own minds. So, no, I believe once once we get through this, hopefully, hopefully we can we can get this pandemic under some kind of control. The, the concern I would have from a health perspective, um, I also live with an underlying health condition myself. I was diagnosed with MS in 2007 and I'm doing quite well. But from a health perspective, I'm, I'm always really interested in, in that. But I note in uh, the Financial Times over the weekend that Wave 2 has had a small town in northeastern China where they've had to shut that down. And I know that Wave 2 of C19 is hitting parts of Japan, Singapore, and South Korea. So, you know, I think in Ireland and the island, we've we've got a way. It would appear, you know, quite well to date, albeit it's it's usually tragic what has happened. But I I think we just need to be very cautious in terms of going full Trump style in terms of opening back up the economy. Absolutely, I think I think what's, I think what's absolutely essential coming after this, Connor, is that the in the south that they move towards the Schlonter care proposals and urgently implement a comprehensive free appointed delivery healthcare system. But also from the north, we need to carry out the Bangura reforms and we need to integrate the yeah. two health systems, north and south, in the same way that we have children's heart surgery for the whole Ireland taking place in Dublin. And we've got cancer care out in the Galvin for the whole of the, the border region in the northwest. We need to do much more of that, achieve the efficiencies in implementation of a, an all-Ireland free appointed delivery healthcare system. That's really important coming out of this. Okay, Paul, look, that's that's fantastic. I really appreciate um, you allowing me to pick your brains on, on these issues. I'll maybe speak to you again. Okay. In the meantime, look after Thank yourself. You, it, gives, it gives sun for the rest of the week, okay. so make sure you get some vitamin D. Okay, thanks, Connor. Look after okay, yourself. Cheers, guys. bye. Thank you very bye. much. Cheers. Bye. So there you have it. Those are the thoughts of Paul Gosling. Um, you can find more information about Paul and his works on his website at paulgosling.net. That was fantastic, some good stuff in there. I think the takeaway for me was the concern that Paul has, and I would echo this, around the reliance upon the tourist 
industry, not just Northern Ireland, but in Ireland as a whole. Um, I mean, I think it's going to be a huge challenge locally and nationally in terms of tourism. I know in the last 12 months, 4,000 new hotel bedrooms came online in Belfast alone. And I don't see hotels operating at anywhere near full capacity for a couple of years. So that's going to be really tricky. I thought it was interesting. Uh, David Attenborough made a contribution on the Andrew Marr show on Sunday, where he shared with us the fact that Costa Rica has actually done away with its entire defence budget. And it has put all of that money that it once was designating to its defence budget into ecotourism. So for me, that was a clever way, and it is a clever way. I mean, if you're Costa Rica is hardly going to take over and dominate the world and win wars. So instead of wasting tens of millions of pounds in a defence budget, the Costa Rican regime have brought that money and diverted that money into more productive use in terms of promoting ecotourism. And I think in terms of, you know, we didn't cover this with Paul, but one of the things that I am interested in trying to find this out is how are we all going to pay for this? You know, it's going to cost many, many, many billions um, from a government perspective to pay for COVID-19 in terms of the economic cost of this. And what I really don't want to see, and I hope this doesn't happen, is us facing another decade of austerity because that simply will not work. And I know David McWilliams, the Dublin economist who I have quite a bit of time for, said in the last couple of weeks on his own podcast that, you know, it would be a catastrophe and it doesn't need to happen in terms of immediate austerity measures post C-19. He puts a lot of the responsibility at the hand of the central banks and the government to underwrite all of this and to print more money. So that's something that maybe we will touch upon in some future podcasts over the next couple of weeks. To finish up this week's episode, I'm going to share with you seven ways that each of us can build our immune systems. What we know is that not only COVID-19, but any kind of flu or virus loves to rumble around people who have weak immune systems. And if that is the case, what are the practical measures that we all control ourselves, that we can do every single day to help defeat any kind of virus, but in particular COVID-19? So the first thing I would suggest to you on a practical level is to reduce your news content. Around about March time, I was listening to the news every day. I found it was affecting my mental health. I was getting quite down about things, quite negative. In the last four weeks, I have really tuned out of the news. I've stopped looking at the news because all we see and all we hear is fear, fear, fear. We know that fear and anxiety and stress weakens our immune system. So that's the first thing we need to think about and consider is reducing your intake of daily news. The second thing that I would encourage, and I have been doing this for four years. You may or may not know I am plant-based. I don't eat meat or dairy. So what that means is I eat a lot of fruit and vegetables every day. And what we know about fruit and vegetables is that it reduces inflammation throughout our body and it also strengthens our immune system. So your nutrition, what you choose to eat, put in your mouth, can play a huge role in whether you are sick or not sick or whether you contract any kind of virus. So have a look at your nutrition, folks. It's really, really important. And there's lots of information on this on the web, so you can check it out yourself. The third thing that's really important to help you defeat COVID-19 is to regularly exercise. Every day for the last few weeks, I'm out doing a bike run. It's a four mile circuit that I do with my two kids. 
And what we know is that exercise, it strengthens the immune system, strengthens our bodies, it's good for our physical health, it's good for our mental health. So exercise is the third thing that I highly recommend you get into your daily routine. The fourth thing is supplementation. I've done quite a bit of work on vitamin D over the last three to four years and vitamin D is my wonder drug. I take 8,000 IU every day. The brand I use is Solgar, S-O-L-G-A-R. I get that from Holland and Barrett or Amazon. And my kids who are six and nine, they take 3,000 IU every day of vitamin D. I'm not going to tell you all the benefits of vitamin D. There are many. What I would like you to do is to do your own research on vitamin D. And then the second supplement, which I would recommend, is to increase your dosage of vitamin C. Again, vitamin C strengthens your immune system. It builds your immune system and it will help you fight against all kinds of viruses. The fifth thing that you can do, which is within your gift and within your power, is sleep. Now, I did really, I played a lot of sport. I was a semi-professional footballer for a long time before I got sick. I obviously was diagnosed with MS at 28 and everything stopped. But I never realized up until last year when I read a book by Dr. Matthew Walker called Why We Sleep, how important sleep is to our overall health. And if you want to check Dr. Walker's book out, Why We Sleep, it's an incredible read. But the bottom line is, it's when we sleep, when our immune system on our body carries out all of the repairing processes. So it used to be a badge of honor, especially from an entrepreneurial and a business perspective. People used to say, oh, well, I can survive on four hours sleep a night. The famous Maggie Thatcher and Ronald Reagan used to say, well, they only needed a few hours sleep a night. What did we find out about those two people and others? Uh, in the subsequent research that we've done around people who are uh, not getting enough sleep, they have ended up with all kinds of brain diseases, including Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and much more. Sleep is very, very important. So if you want a healthy immune system, it's something that you need to work at, you need to plan it, and you need to put some effort into getting a good night's sleep. And I have noticed since my sleep has improved in the last 12 months, my overall health has improved as well the sixth thing is a little bit uh let me see something that's a very personal thing i love to read um i read every single day i also listen to music every day it helps my mood i think it helps and uh, and works my mental health and i know if i'm happier um then my immune system will be much stronger as well and the final thing final 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 thing that i think is really important and is within all of our gifts is to make sure this is non-conditional unconditional make sure that you structure every single day of your weeks we talked about this last week on the episode with nick leeson it's important that you structure the day ahead that you get up in the morning do you do some exercise you have a cup of coffee do you start your work if you're homeschooling how are you going to schedule that into your day structure is so important it's when we lose our structure that things start and can start to go wrong where you can self start to self-medicate and fall off track it's not a good place to be. It's very important that you stay disciplined, that you work at all of this stuff. You work at your health. You work at your physical health, your mental health. And if you do all that, if you do all that, then you will continually build your immune system and that will protect you from COVID-19 and other kinds of viruses. Now, I'm not saying those seven things alone will keep you safe from COVID-19. Obviously, there's lots of other things that you potentially can do, like washing your hands, and social distancing and all of those other things that we're now very familiar with. But I'm telling you now that if you implement those seven things into your life, change your lifestyle, that will make you physically stronger. 
and healthier. Okay, folks, that's the end of this week's episode. I've thoroughly enjoyed making this all on the Anchor app. I'm not an expert. I'm not a technical chap by any stretch of the imagination, but it's been a great adventure. It is a great adventure, and I'm really enjoying making these shows. Big shout out and thanks to Paul for his contribution this week. I thought it was fascinating and really good, some information that he was sharing with all of us. If there has been any questions or if there are any issues causing you or your business any particular anxiety right now I want you to engage with me the best place to find me is on LinkedIn or on Twitter or on email you can email me at connor at gdpni.com it's been a lot of fun until next week look after yourselves people take good care of yourselves and try and stay positive positive.